welcome to Psych Attack. I'm Dr. Jasmine B. MacDonald. Today, I'm catching up with Associate Professor Lindsay Malloy to hear about her research in developmental psychology and the law. In particular, ways to improve investigative interviewing with people who have experienced maltreatment. And in this discussion, Lindsay's going to help us understand some developmental differences when interviewing children as compared to older adults. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be able to make this time to talk about such a really serious but very interesting topic. Yeah, no, it is a heavy topic, but um, it's interesting to me. I know I'm a bit biased, but hopefully <laughs> interesting to others as well. Like, I think it crosses a, quite a few different fields, and so um, I like that about it. Yes, yeah, and that was something that I wanted to touch base with you about so we could just dive into that, which sure. is okay. probably what I'm thinking about this topic, I think broadly about forensic psych. So would you mind just painting a little bit of a picture of the aspects of psychology or, you know, policy more broadly that this work is relevant to? So when I first started in this field, I remember my undergraduate mentor actually gave me an article that was called, What is Forensic Psychology Anyway? So that was the name (laughs) of it. So that was published in the early 2000s. And I think a lot of people are still asking that question, like, what is forensic psychology? So I tell my students, um, it, who are in a forensic psychology program that, you know, it is the, it, the research and, and application of psychology to the legal system. So that's kind of the formal definition. I think sometimes people think of forensic as just being clinical, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, sort of synonymous with clinical psych, but it can have all these different aspects, right? Developmental, social, cognitive, clinical. And so I really like that about the field. But it's really any any research area in psych that can be applied to the legal system. And in my case, that's typically been the intersection of like developmental psych and forensic psych or issues that are relevant to the law. If we could backtrack a little bit and hear about your your kind of journey into psychology and forensic psychology, what did that look like? Yeah, and I've asked, I had guest speakers in my grad seminar um, during COVID, and it was really interesting to get to hear everyone's journey, and everyone said the same thing. We all kind of ended up in this field of sort of developmental psych and the law, and we all started out by saying, oh, we had, I had kind of a weird journey to get here, and then everyone described something that <laughs> was actually relatively similar. So it seemed like all of us were in our undergraduate years, had some sort of mentor that introduced us to this area of psychology that we didn't know existed. And so that's kind of how it happened with me as well. Like I had a honor seminar with a professor, Dr. Deborah Poole at Central Michigan University, who used to talk about the work that she was doing and would talk about like expert witness cases she was working on. And I just thought this is so fascinating. I always had an interest in kids and sort of broadly speaking, like helping kids or doing something that would benefit children's lives. But I hadn't ever thought about it in this broader way of like not helping individual children per se or working with them in a clinical sense, but in working on research that would hopefully benefit kids more broadly who are undergoing or involved in these really, you know, bad experiences, essentially, like something that has to do with the legal system. So kind of met her through learning that this field even existed, you know, started doing research, honors thesis research as an undergrad. And then um, she sort of, I honestly didn't even know what graduate school was. And uh, she kind of walked me through, you know, 
doing research on different programs and deciding kind of where I wanted to go. But I had applied to a lot of different kinds of programs in a way. Um, and I was even considering law school for a while, but it just seemed to be that this is where, this is where I ended up wanting to be like in psychology and, and, um, the rest is kind of, it just, I don't know, sort of happened. <laughs> like one step led to another and, uh, I kind of went to school and never left. What keeps you working in this space now? The thing I really love about the work is the application piece of it. Like, is the real world applied part of it? I mean, I know that it's not like cool to say that or whatever. Or it's, or it's, you know, it's, there's this still this thing in psychology where, you know, the more basic the science is, the more prestigious it is. You know, I'm using air quotes there. I know you can't see me, but um, <laughs> I, uh, but I really love the applied side of it. And I wouldn't, I've done work like basic, you know, experimental work and stuff, but I like that typically everything that comes out of my lab has some sort of applied angle that hopefully has mm -hmm. implications for real people's lives and that's what really keeps me feeling good about it and like wanting to keep pushing. Mm. I relate to that very much and writing about applied issues how motivating that is because you can see the people at the other end of it and I've had that in episodes where I'll have people on board and say and so what's the practical implication for this and they'll go well now we know this really niche thing I'm like oh yeah, yeah that is cool that's that's my applied bias coming out <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean I, I I can't I mean that is definitely what keeps me um intrigued about it now obviously like a lot of the work has theoretical um there's theoretical underpinnings or we might be testing theory yeah and but it can be both and right you can have advancements of theory and the advancements of the practice side of things. Um, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, but I also think it's okay to just, you know, look at an entirely applied issue that is of interest, but it doesn't have to be one or the other. And I think traditionally that's been somewhat of the, you know, the norm has been like, oh, you have to pick a lane. And yeah, I don't think that's the case. Mm. All right, well, to dive in and focus on your work, a nice place to start could be uh, key learnings and the work that you've done around interviewing for disclosures with children. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously it would take probably way longer than this conversation to go over <laughs> all the stuff that we've learned. But I think, you know, since the mid-80s when we had a lot of these daycare or child sexual abuse cases that emerged and people started asking these questions of, well, wait a second, like, can you lead kids to make false allegations like this? Like, can this really happen the way that, that people are saying it happened in this case? So in some ways, these real life cases like pushed this work into existence, or at least the types of questions that we're actually asking about children's suggestibility, their eyewitness testimony. And that's kind of how I got involved in the field was originally thinking about memory and suggestibility, like I'm interested in those things, then started moving away, not totally away, but a bit away from these questions about memory per se, and like what are the factors that influence whether a child remembers an event and how we can get the most, you know, accurate and truthful reports from them, but to the questions more so of 
what are the social and motivational factors that might influence a child and whether they even report something in the first place. So Mm. we can't interview them and get those details if we don't even know about, you know, that the experience um, took place uh, in, in the first place. So when it comes to child maltreatment, or actually several kinds of maltreatment, we need to really rely on the disclosures from kids. It's pretty rare that you can identify maltreatment um, without a disclosure from a child. I mean, surely in some cases like extreme neglect, you know, there might be signs that a teacher could pick up on, maybe some kinds of physical abuse, but largely we rely on kids to tell us what's going on in their lives and what's happened to them. So it makes this issue of, of disclosure and like the patterns there and who they disclose to and when and what factors influence it really important. So I got really interested in that. I think we know a lot um, at this point. Like we know a lot about how to interview cooperative victims and witnesses, right? So kids who want to tell us what's going on, um, how to maximize the amount of, of accurate and detailed information that we get from them. We know even very young kids can give us good accounts of their experiences. Um, we know though that also kids can be influenced to say things happened when they really didn't happen, right? We learned a lot over the years about that. And I think in recent, maybe the last decade or two, we've become very interested in in the question on the other side of that too, which is like, what factors influence kids saying something didn't happen when it actually did. So for a long time, the emphasis was on like the false allegation piece, which is obviously really important. But um, so is kids saying that something didn't happen when it actually did. So these are both real risks that have real consequences. We now know about lots of techniques that can help us when we know a child has disclosed and we, we are trying to get the most accurate and detailed report from them. We have lots of good methods for doing that um, and minimizing suggestion and everything like that. We know a bit less, uh, I would say, about like how do we encourage truthful disclosures from kids when they are reluctant to talk and when they don't want to tell us what happened? Like, how do we get them to disclose without also being suggestive or leading? And so those Mm -hmm. are some of the questions that I'm the most interested in these days. Mm -hmm. Those, like the social motivational factor piece. Interviews aren't happening like in a vacuum. So thinking too about not just what's happening in the interview, in the forensic interview, where a lot of the focus has been, but thinking well, what's happening outside that context in the child's life and how is that influencing what they're bringing up, what they're willing to disclose in the interview? Mm. The other adults in their life and the influence that they have on them and the fact that those are likely, especially mums, are likely to be the people who were disclosed to in the first place. And Mm -hmm. that's that practical part of sitting back reading the paper and thinking actually before they even get in that room, there are these interactions that probably happen with mum or other adults first. And after, right, after the fact. So my first kind of foray into this was a study that I did in grad school, which is still my most highly cited paper and was on recantation in actual cases. And we looked at this big sample of over 250 cases and we found that, yeah, maternal support um, was a really key factor in whether kids recanted. So during the course of the investigation, if mom reacted poorly to the disclosure, right, if mom was didn't believe the child or blamed the child for the abuse and things like that, then kids were more likely to recant during the few months of those investigations. 
I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Like it's not, you know, it's not that surprising in many ways. Like we know parents have an enormous influence on kids. A lot of times the parents were putting maybe even direct pressure on the child or the child was seeing the way that their lives or families had kind of fallen apart as a result of this disclosure. And so they were hoping that taking it back would kind of have everything go back to normal. How moms react is so important for whether kids keep disclosing, but also for how they adjust after disclosure, how the case moves through the system for a lot of things. So not just like the forensic issues, but the kind of clinical mental health issues as well. So that's such a key piece. And it's one that I don't want to say other people have ignored. It's, it's hard to study. You know, we can, we can really control what happens in the investigative interview. We can't necessarily control what happens outside of it, but we do have to consider that. And I think forensic interviewers, social workers need to know when a case comes across their desk, like, okay, if these factors are present in this case, that means that this is a case where there's an especially high risk of recantation and maybe we need to provide extra resources to that family or to that child and just be aware of that risk. It's tricky, right? Because as you've said, the legal process is really likely going to require multiple interviews and a high level of clear and consistent telling of a a series of events from a child. Yeah, shifts in social pressure in between, um, I think is really interesting context for people to keep in mind. In this show, I, I like to try to tie in the aspects of method. So how do we know this stuff? How do we know this maternal influence on recantation? Would you mind describing that study? Because I, I thought it was quite quite sure. clever. Yeah, thank you. I loved that study. I really, it's still <laughs> one of my favorites. Um, so basically, you know, I, I said in the field work, so the actual looking at actual cases, we had identified these factors as having predicted recantation. But obviously, that's a field study. We're just looking at these case files and coding these variables. We can't draw causal conclusions from those findings because, well, you know, it's not experiment. We didn't manipulate anything, no random assignment, all of that stuff. So what we then did in a few different studies was we experimentally tested some of those factors that we had identified in the field work. And that's kind of a common theme, I think, throughout, uh, you know, my research program is like, find something interesting in the field to figure out a way to test it in the lab or find something interesting in the lab, go back and look in the field and see what's happening. So we had found this variable of essentially, you know, how supportive mom was, was really influential in whether kids recanted in the real world. So we designed a study where kids came into the lab We picked the ages of kids that were especially high risk for recantation in our field study. So we had six to nine-year-olds come in and they played this, you know, did this whole scripted event with a research assistant during which this this puppet broke that um, was designed to break. It broke um, as the research assistant was doing this big demonstration. Now, they weren't supposed to play with the puppets. There's a big sign that says, like, you know, there's a X through it, like, do not touch. And they're told at the beginning, like, hey, just don't leave those alone because they're really fragile and, you know, we're not supposed to touch them. But the research assistant who comes in is like, oh, it's no big deal. Like, I'm sure it'll be fine. We can play with these. And then, of course, this breakage happens and the research assistant is like, oh, no, I knew we shouldn't have played with these. Like, 
I, I might get into big trouble if anyone finds out. So let me just put these away. Let me kind of, she kind of puts it at the bottom and was like, okay, let's have this be our secret and, you know, not tell anyone about it. The child is, is interviewed by a research assistant about what happened during this health and safety scripted event. And all of the kids end up disclosing the broken puppet uh, that we analyzed. So there were actually seven kids. Those are like these, you know, hardcore deniers who never would admit that the lady broke the puppet. But for the most part, the kids eventually disclosed the lady broke the puppet in the first interview. Then we had moms uh, randomly assigned to either be supportive or unsupportive of that disclosure. So mom either came in and was like, oh, I heard you told the, about the lady breaking the puppet. That's so great. Like, you know, it's great to tell the truth. If anyone asks you again, I think you should keep saying that the lady broke the puppet versus, oh, you know, I heard you told that the lady broke the puppet. And I think the lady's going to get into big trouble for that. So I think you should try to fix it and say that she didn't break the puppet. So these were very direct suggestions that they should recant, essentially. We had another RA come in to do the second interview which was identical to the first, but they're like, oh, the other research assistant had to leave and we lost her notes. So unfortunately, we're going to have to ask you all the same questions again. And these kids are pretty young. So they're like, yeah, that's fine. That's a good cover story. <laughs> so I got to ask you all the same questions. And so- Sorry to interrupt your flow of thought, Lindsay. Yeah. In the health system or potentially in the legal system as well, that's not unheard of, right? <laughs> like you need to tell a new person yeah. the same yeah. you know, in mental health practice experience that I have. It's like people saying, do yeah. I have to tell you my story again? Like, don't you have yeah. this on file? So it's like. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Or even when you're doing like a customer service thing or something and you have to keep being transferred and you're like, okay, let me start again. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So sorry. Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt no. the flow. We've got. No, that's great. We've got a new RA come in. Yeah, they do the interview, they do the same thing, same questions, and they give the child kind of open-ended, like, tell me what happened. And so for that, it's pretty easy for the kid to just not mention the puppet, right? But then there's direct questions that ask about the puppet. And then there's even highly suggestive questions that ask about the puppet, like, when the lady broke the puppet, was she happy or mad? So at that point, you know, if the kid wants to deny it, they have to say, well, she didn't break the puppet instead of just answering one of the options provided. So anyways, we found that, uh, you know, about half of the kids who got that unsupportive language from mom, where mom said, hey, you know, I think the lady's going to get into trouble. You should probably try to fix it and say she didn't do it. Half of the kids recanted their disclosure of the broken puppet. So after they'd already said the lady broke the puppet, they then denied that in the second interview. So it's a pretty substantial proportion of the kids, right? Like mom's mm. mom's suggestion there had a pretty powerful influence on what kids were willing to say in the second interview. And actually a fair number of the kids and especially the older kids, the eight to nine year olds, maintained their recantation throughout the entire second interview. Mm. So when they were asked three direct questions about the puppet, when they were asked three suggestive questions about the puppet, like they continued to say like, nope, she didn't do it, continued to recant. In other words, they gave a, a pretty convincing recantation. Mm. Yeah, so that one was was nice because we were able to draw causal conclusions that for then because, you know, experimental, right? Obviously, it's not maltreatment. We're talking about a broken puppet. So there's issues of ecological validity and such. But there are elements, right? So it's like this 
forbidden thing happened. They weren't supposed to be touching this. The kid is kind of involved in it because they are playing with one of the puppets and the research assistant is holding the other. And so it's like they're sort of implicated in the wrongdoing. You know, a pretty basic suggestion for mom, kids took back what they said. And in the real world, you know, a lot of the things in our cases were much more severe than that. Kids are being blamed for their their grandmother's health problems because they disclosed or they're arranging for them to meet with the alleged perpetrator and and things like that. So, yes, the event is fairly mild, but so is the <laughs> the pressure that we put on the kids because of course it's a it's a study, right? You talk about some interesting differences in that sense between the younger half of the sample and the older half that's 6 to 7 compared to that 8 and 9 around moral reasoning, cognitive reasoning and that being able to, well, yeah. reading the witness, Lindsay, you, you tell the audience. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so in our in our real life study, I mean, we didn't break down the ages this much in the study, but when we looked, you know, in the actual publication, but when we looked, it's like the eight to nine range or roughly around then was like an especially high risk of recantation. And so again, that's kind of why we focused on that in the lab studies that we did. So this is one of them, but we also looked at children's perceptions of wrongdoing disclosure of adults using like hypothetical vignettes in these stories that we gave kids and stuff. And there does seem to be a shift that happens, you know, from the ages of like maybe six to nine, where they just get a better understanding of family loyalty and secrecy and and what it means to keep a secret and sort of the importance of secret keeping for relationships and for trust, understanding like obligation to parents and to family members and things. And so like, I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons that we see this shift and kind of how they think about telling on someone essentially. Yes. And that just unlocked a memory for me in reading the paper of older kids having a better sense of whether police would be told when maltreatment had occurred. And my heart broke. I was like that idea of like, oh, this is something that's happened in the family that probably police won't even be told about this. And that impacting what kids would talk about was like, yeah, of course, having that awareness of, well, this means now I know this means a bad outcome for this person in my family or yes, interesting. Yeah, and older kids tend to have a better sense of that kind of stuff, you know, through experience and just kind of life experience. And and some of our work, we've compared maltreated and non-maltreated kids. So kids who've had like substantiated maltreatment cases versus kids who, well, it's possible they could have, they're in our non-maltreated sample, but they haven't had any formal uh, cases of, of maltreatment. And some of that work, yeah, it is pretty heartbreaking to see. I know one of my colleagues did a study where she looked at kids' understanding of fantasy and reality, and it was the maltreated kids who were more likely to say, like, yes, this bad thing can happen in real life. Parents fighting or someone being arrested or things like that, it's like the maltreated kids were more aware, like, yes, this kind of stuff could happen in real life, whereas the non-maltreated kids sort of saw that as like, Fan, you know, fantasy, just like monsters and other things, right? So right. they were actually more accurate, but the accuracy is based on, you know, the negative life experiences that they've had. Mm, for sure. Let's shift focus and talk a little bit about these same kinds of processes in investigative interviewing when we're talking about the population having experienced maltreatment being older adults. Yeah, so we we don't as a field we don't know nearly as much about older adults and disclosure of maltreatment as we do about kids. 
Um, but it, it is kind of an, a shift that's maybe sort of odd in some ways, but I've always been interested in vulnerable populations, uh, period, in terms of, you know, these are individuals who are at greater risk of being abused um, and also at risk of potentially not having their reports believed or kind of come to the attention of authorities. And so that's kind of how what got us started on this. So I had a postdoc a couple years ago now, um, Dr. Joshua Wyman, he spearheaded a lot of this work. We focused together on older adults. And there it's not like there hasn't been attention on older adults in memory. Obviously, like we know a lot about like cognitive declines and memory declines as we age and and that's been investigated very fully and looking at eyewitness testimony, even like lineup identifications and accuracy. People have looked at older adults. But not a lot, again, on that like social and motivational factor of what might influence someone to disclose that they're being maltreated and how can we encourage those kinds of disclosures? Like what are the barriers to disclosure? So first, can we understand those and then figure out how we might remove some of those barriers? Because we have an aging population. The over 75 group is supposed to double in the next 15 years. Wow. And we know that older adults are at greater risk of being victims of crimes, especially certain kinds of crimes, than younger adults. And so there is this vulnerability there with actually experiencing crime and a vulnerability with maybe being questioned about it or being willing to disclose it. So that kind of led us to um, focus on this older adult population. But I don't want to make it seem like oh, they're so similar to kids, right? Like they're, it, it's another vulnerable population. And I think sometimes it's talked about in that way, like, and it, it can be patronizing for older adults that, sure. oh, no, it's not like interviewing a child. And um, no. so I just want to point that out because when we're talking about older adults, generally that definition means like 65 and up, according to a mm. lot of different organizations and definitions. But that's a really heterogeneous population. Um, yeah. You know, when you think about like, you know, what is the average 75-year-old? Well, there's a lot of variability there. And I think even more so than what's the average five-year-old. Like there's probably, yeah, yeah. you know, more um, similarities there. So we've got a big range, lots of heterogeneity. So very important not to necessarily lump them into one group, but um, yes. but there is a risk there. There is a risk and there is a need and it's going to be an increasing need for law enforcement to be able to interview older adults and get accounts of their experiences. Mm, absolutely. What are some of the kind of key lessons for doing investigative interviewing with older adults that is going to lead to the best outcomes and the most accurate versions of people's experiences? I think first, like recognizing that heterogeneity and not, you know, lumping, you know, thinking of all older adults as being vulnerable or, or having these certain patterns or risk factors is important. Um, but I, let me back up and just say, like, I don't think we really know <laughs> first. So I'm right. going to I'm going to say a few things like these are things that we probably want to think about and and do, but we don't know uh, enough at this point. Like there really are no specific protocols. So for kids, we have like several specific protocols for interviewing them um, that recognize some, their developmental capacities and limitations. We don't have the same thing for older adults. And I'm not saying that we necessarily need to, but just that in some cases we might 
need to and that we need a lot Mm. more research. So let me start by saying that we need a lot more research on understanding. But we know enough. We know that people, including law enforcement, have more negative opinions about the credibility of older adults and about the memory accuracy of older adults versus younger adults. So I think there there are some, yeah, there are some biases there, like sort of like, again, with kids, like we have these, a lot of people have these biases about kids and their abilities and accuracy. There are some similarities in circumstances a bit to child maltreatments when we t- think about like uh, maltreatment of older adults. Some of them are in a position of being more dependent or more like financially dependent or you know, emotionally or physically dependent on others, on, on caregivers. And so that puts them in this vulnerable position. They might also be isolated. Like kids are isolated. They don't have as many outlets. Um, they're very much dependent on others. And uh, it's harder for them to, like, they're not going to necessarily call the police to make a report, right? So their social yeah. world is smaller than adults. And I think that can be the case for older adults as well in some Mm -hmm. circumstances. And so thinking about those risk factors and the similarities there, we published a study looking at law enforcement and what they think the barriers to disclosure are for older adult maltreatment. And they talked about a lot of the same things as we see with kids, like people being ashamed or embarrassed to disclose, people being fearful of the consequences of disclosure, mm. fearing that their loved ones will get into trouble or they'll they'll be removed from home. So for kids, that might be being removed from their family. But for older adults, it might be like, well, if I disclose this, like, am I going to have to go live in a, in a long-term care facility? Like, I want to stay at home. So there, there are those fears of consequences. Um, lack of training and protocols and what to do and concerns about privacy. Like just some of the police officers in our study talked about how, you know, oh, they're from a different generation and it's just different. Like they're not as open about talking about some of this stuff. Like some of these topics are more taboo and they don't really want to share this stuff with a stranger. One of the things I thought was really interesting was there's no such thing as like an older adult police officer. Right. Right. Like they tend to retire pretty early. I think, you know, commonly retire maybe some even in their 40s, but in their 50s. So when you have an older adult who is trying to or an officer who's trying to build rapport with, let's say, you know, an 85 year old who is they suspect maybe being maltreated. The officers talked about that difficulty of trying to build rapport and trying to have like common ground and experiences And they Mm -hmm. said they often would approach them like they might approach their parents or other older adults in their lives. But it might be really challenging and difficult for an older adult to disclose something that they feel ashamed or embarrassed about to like a 23-year-old, you know, who is interviewing them. I mean, like, I'm not saying it has to be age matched or anything like that, but just it's interesting to think about the social dynamics there and like the big age gaps that can exist between interviewee and interviewer and what that might mean about life experience and ability to build rapport and gain trust enough with someone that they're willing to tell you these things. I don't even necessarily mean like sexual abuse or things. I mean, the shame factor came up a lot when it came to financial abuse or Mm -hmm. um, older adults falling victim to like financial scams and stuff online. They felt really embarrassed about 
like, I can't believe I fell for this. And, you know, I don't really want to tell anyone about it. Um, Which can happen to anyone, but you can see how with the tech aspect, this feeds into stereotypes or even whether or not the law enforcement officer has that stereotype, the likelihood that the older adult will perceive them to, are they going to judge me because I'm older and I've fallen for this? Yes. Yeah. And actually that comes up in the research too. They have less trust of their memory and sort of start believing some of those stereotypes a bit. And then that can influence, you know, their, um, how they respond in an interview. Backtrack for context of what's in my brain before I ask Mm -hmm. you this. Okay. Some of the work I've been working on in the last couple of years is around intimate partner violence and coercive control. And this kind of coming up with financial abuse and various different kinds of abuse and this idea of a barrier to disclosure and and being able to address this as a, a social issue is acknowledging that there is maltreatment or something problematic is happening in the first place. And mm-hmm. I think about this because of you mentioning with older adults, like that there's likely to be this big generational gap between mm-hmm. law enforcement and potentially there's cultural aspects as well, but gendered aspects, is this yeah. something that you found coming out in your work of accessing and trying to support groups who may not acknowledge what's happening despite the law seeing this as something that shouldn't be happening, that they personally don't realize a crime is being committed? Absolutely. I'm glad you reminded me of it actually, because one of the themes that came out in the interviews that we did with the police officers was this idea of like not even recognizing that it was that abuse was occurring, right? Just Mm -hmm. having normalized a certain kind of behavior or being from a different time, quote unquote, not recognizing that abuse is abuse and that that they were experiencing it. So not even realizing that they should be telling someone what Mm. was going on because either they didn't know it was happening, like in the case of maybe financial abuse, or they didn't recognize that it was abusive. So, I mean, we see that sometimes in our work with kids, and then we we saw it come up in these interviews. Now, we're doing some work now where we're trying to get, actually look at the older adults' perceptions of what they consider abuse or not, and sort of like giving hypothetical vignettes and having them indicate, like, would you consider this abusive? And would you tell someone about this if this was happening to you? And like, who would you tell? So trying to get a sense of those Mm. disclosure processes in that way rather than asking about their own situation. There's a lot in this conversation and in reading your work that I found really fascinating. And I know that the audience will as well. Are there any other things that you'd want to kind of pique people's interest in on what you have coming up? So I think um, been talking about kids, been talking about older adults, and we're recently started doing some work on adolescents. And so I'm excited about that too. Well, I shouldn't actually say so I've done work with adolescents before, but looking more at like the interrogations and confessions side of things and looking at their risk for when they're interviewed as a suspect. But if you look at the protocols for interviewing kids, um, like the NICHD protocol is the most empirically based and has the most research on it. Uh, but it's for kids up to age 14, you know, in some of the aspects of it, the way the ground rules are kind of set in the beginning might be sort of too young for even like the younger teenagers. So my graduate student, Sydney, right now is trying to look at ground rules with adolescents and kind of how do they Mm. perceive them. Setting ground rules, like sort of telling kids that they can say that they don't understand a question if they don't understand, telling them that they can say, I don't know, if they don't know an answer. 
a lot of this work has been done on, again, very young kids, like disproportionately looking at preschool age kids or like elementary school age kids. And uh, Sonia Brubaker and her colleagues in the last couple of years have looked at these ground rules with older adults and actually found that older adults find the ground rules quite useful, that they don't find them patronizing. Um, and so our question is really about, well, what about adolescents and can we look at better ways to interview this group who we know is actually at greater risk for being involved in the legal system and being a victim of a crime than the younger kids are. Right. So we do need to figure out like how is how can we best interview them? And they have these different characteristics like they have a greater desire for autonomy than the younger kids, you know. They want to be kind of recognized as being more adult, but they also have these like psychosocial and cognitive limitations compared to adults. So how can we make sure that we're like respecting them and building rapport with them and getting trust with them, but also getting, you know, accounts of their experiences? So yeah, so we're going to do a lab study looking at these ground rules with adolescents, see how they feel about them. Do they find them to be babyish and, you know, do they, or do they find them to be useful uh, like the older adults did? So Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about that because I think that's a gap, uh, in the research where, you know, not a lot of focus specifically on the adolescent population. Seems like as well, if we think about the most kind of extreme end of experiences that if someone's hit adolescence before they've had the chance to disclose or have a conversation with someone about their mistreatment or maltreatment, then, mm. um, I don't know, maybe I have stereotypes in my head about <laughs> about teenagers, but that, you know, that's a long time and a period of time of, like you said, around autonomy of having to be um, self-dependent and a distrust for adults and systems that seems like it would make this particularly complex period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, a, there's you know, certain groups of even within that adolescent population, um, you know, others have, have looked at commercially sexually exploited youth. And so in those cases, it's really, you know, the, the teens can be really reluctant to talk and there might be a greater likelihood of perceiving that they're in a sexual relationship or a consensual relationship with the person that's abusing them. And so it's like, Oh, there's, yeah, that's a whole host of, <laughs> of, of things going on and, and how to, you know, encourage disclosures. Um, it's a particularly tricky group. So we're just tackling the ground rules piece for now, but I think hopefully eventually there will be a lot of different protocols and techniques we can use depending on the population. That would be the big goal, I think. I feel as though we've covered a lot of like really interesting, important topics and aspects of your work but I also feel like we have barely skimmed the surface <laughs> and I you have a life outside of this and I want to let you go shortly but I really oh. genuinely want to acknowledge how I like even in the couple of papers that I've read recently you know we've we really have skimmed the surface of the impressive work that you've done and if people want to reach out or keep track of the things that you're working on and, and see some updates what's the best way for them to do that? I tend to post stuff on Twitter quite regularly. Um, that's uh, at L Malloy, L-M-A-L-L-O-Y. Although I have to say like it, uh, it's been a balance ever since COVID happened of like personal and professional. So there's a bit of both in there. Um, I used to keep it entirely professional and then COVID just sort of blew the doors down on everything. And so uh, now I find that it's 
I don't know. I haven't really stopped. So be aware of that. Uh, it's not just the work stuff. Um, and- I really value that. <laughs> Oh, I like thanks. seeing that, you know, you're, you're an impressive researcher, but you're a human as well. Oh, <laughs> I've oh, quite liked it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, I try to keep it real on there. Um, and I, I delete, I, I tweet and delete a lot too. So I'll tweet something and then 60 <laughs> seconds later, I'll panic and delete it. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. surprisingly common, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say I delete about fifty percent of all of the tweets that I do. So, but that that can be a decent way of keeping up with the work. And then I do have a website. Our lab has a website, talkingtokidslab.com. I've been notoriously bad about updating it, so I will say that. But that uh, the the website is there, and we just updated our research assistant application, so we do update it sometimes. Yeah. Lovely. And I'll, I'll link to those things in the show notes. Thank you. Okay. I like to conclude episodes with, you know, talking about appreciating the human behind the research. What do you do when you're not researching, um, you know, the, the overlap of psychology and the law? Yeah. So I shuttle kids back and forth to different activities. That's been my, like, that's what I feel like I do right now. Um, but actually I love it. Like I know people talk about overscheduling and like kids being involved in too many activities and, you know, you don't just get to rest. And I, I think we do. I mean, we, we get to rest a fair amount, but I love like all the different activities, like the dance classes and, um, soccer and drum lessons. And, you know, it's kind of like they're at the age where it's kind of figuring out like, what is their thing and what are they good at and what do they like and what do they gravitate towards? And you kind of got to try a few things in order to do that. So I spent a lot of my time doing that and, um, listening to audiobooks is like one of my big things. Nice. So I love listening to fiction, uh, mostly fiction or memoirs on, um, I use the Libby app, so it's all free. It's all like through my library, which I love. And then trying to heal my back, although that's less fun and more like just doing phys- physio for my back uh, because that's a longstanding problem. So those are – oh, and my dog. You know, I love my dog. And I, <laughs> I do post pictures of him on Twitter sometimes mm-hmm. too, and he's just the best. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've fallen in love with him. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, he's, I mean, I really didn't know. I really didn't get it how much, but he is just, we just love him. He's just like another, another baby. <laughs> totally. Yeah. The silliness and the, the love. Mm. With audiobooks, do you have, to kind of finish up the episode, do you have a recommendation for people? Something oh, you've yeah. enjoyed a lot recently? So I just did this because I went through all the, I listened to 76 books in 2023 and wow. so I went through and yeah, so I went through, I like listen all the time. So if I'm getting ready in the morning, if I'm driving, if I'm washing dishes, you know, I'm, I'm just constantly like listening to the book. So it feels like, I don't know, it's, it feels almost like cheating, but, um, but it, so I've managed to listen to a lot last year and I loved Demon Copperhead. It's really heavy and it's it's definitely like trigger warning for opioid crisis um, for anyone, but it's it's really, really good. And I like the audiobook because it's sort of in the accent seems a, a big part of it. Uh, and okay. so there was that one and I loved Lessons in Chemistry, which is kind of a bit rage inducing, especially as a, like a female scientist, but it's really yes, this is there's a, a series on Apple 
TV on yeah. this, right? Yes, yeah. I heard that. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. I've only listened to the book, but um, but I really loved it. It's very good, especially for like being in academia. It's a different part of science, but it's obviously mm. than, than psychology. But it was really good. So, um, so I loved. I I love listening to, yeah, memoirs and fiction, all about it. Perfect. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I am usually the kind of person who needs the same thing to be suggested two or three times. And just yesterday at work, someone suggested the series to me and said, you will really like this. But basically what you said, you you will be filled with rage at certain points. Yeah. (laughs) So that's too, all right, better do it. it, It's funny. So, because I went to a talk today and, and um, the speaker had the cover of that book up and then I asked her about it after and she said that she'd done both. She'd watched the series and read the book and that the book is better than the series. But I mean, obviously that's usually the case, right? But if you can only yes. do one, like do, you know, it's it's a good story. It's very um, entertaining. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. It's been an yeah. absolute pleasure and uh, I appreciate you coming to have a chat with me. Thank you. Yeah, it was great meeting you and, and thanks for having me on. Thank you.